0: So, I came across this <clears throat> uh, ad which I was rather fond of, and it said, double page spread in the Sunday Times in England. Try this simple form of meditation. Focus, on there's a little orange dot in the middle. Some of you may have seen this. Focus on this dot, stare into it for a few moments, see it as a door, an opening, a vessel into which your mind is flowing. Once inside, your heartbeat begins to slow. You feel peaceful, calm, serene. You will feel the same opening the door of an E-Class Mercedes. (laughs) 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 (laughs)
1: The
0: meditation comes to the car world. Did
1: you try? (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I was reading this a friend of mine writes these packs of cards uh, all different themes, 52 things to do at the beach, do on a plane, with your kids one of them is 52 uh, guilty pleasures and one of them was um, if you've always desired a card but you can't afford it go test drive it
1: <laughs>
0: no I haven't done that <laughs> <laughs> So its interesting because it's taken from a, a traditional Buddhist meditation on um, meditation on casinas or colors round dots Anyhow, I'm using that because so much of our advertising industry works on uh, a theme that I want to talk about today an aspect of the thinking mind called papancha called the aspect of mind that um, proliferates and picks up an object or an experience and elaborates upon it, usually in somewhat of a deluded way. So I'll explain more as we go on. And I want to talk more generally also about working with our thinking mind since I know one or two of you are thinking out there.
1: <laughs>
0: so a study I read, I've had, I've had different reviews of this study, but one study reported that we think about 90,000 thoughts a day, and 60,000 of them we thought yesterday, so not that many original thoughts. I actually think it's probably about eighty-five or 89,000 we thought yesterday, and maybe the odd few are original. So we think a lot. Sometimes it may feel like we think 90,000 thoughts within the space of a meditation. I remember when I first started practicing, I was astounded how little I could pay attention to more than one or two breaths because of the the raging torrent of thoughts. I originally gave this talk, actually not a similar time of year, during the, the period of Lent, which those of you raised in the Catholic tradition, Lent is a time when traditionally you're supposed to renounce something. Usually it's like chocolate or something you like. And I thought about, why don't we practice renouncing our obsession with our thinking? It'd be a far more productive uh, endeavor that would lead to much more happiness than <clears throat> giving up our chocolate. <laughs> so when the Buddha talked about thoughts, he said that he, couldn't, he was really good at coming up with analogies and metaphors for every aspect of the mind-body. Very practical, and he said he couldn't come up with an analogy that was quick enough to describe a thought. The arising and passing of a thought is so rapid. It's so, you know, when you try to pay attention with some detail to the arising of a thought, it's, you know, come and gone in an instant. Thoughts disappear in an instant. Extremely ephemeral, extremely non-definable, non-findable, and non-graspable. And yet they this huge uh, determinant of how we live our lives, how we are in the present. And the first insight that people often experience when they begin sight meditation practice is how much we're lost in our thoughts. How completely obsessed we are with our thinking mind. And if you ask somebody on the street, do you think a lot? They'd probably say, oh, you know, sometimes here and there, you know. But when we actually give the mind something simple to do, like pay attention to the breath, realize what's in the background of that is, is our thinking mind. The second insight I often see people experiencing is that most of the, a lot of those thoughts are quite negative, or they lead us to places which are sort of harmful and destructive. You'd think at least if we were thinking, we'd be having a good time thinking. Mm -hmm. But what do we think? It's usually about the worst-case scenarios, our catastrophes. Mm -hmm. The third insight that people come to somewhat later is that most of our thoughts aren't true. They're somewhat a little distorted, subjective, our own belief system, our own view. (laughs) So meditation practice, uh, come, some of the common misconceptions about meditation practice, <coughs> one is it's thinking about something. You know, to meditate upon is a common parlance. But the, it's clearly that's not what we're doing here. We're not meditating upon as in thinking about. And the other common misconception is it's about not thinking and how much suffering that one's caused. <laughs> All of us get tripped up in, uh, I thought a lot in my sit, you know, I must be doing something wrong, you know, I'm supposed to be having this serene, I'm supposed to be looking like that, <laughs> doesn't look like they're thinking very much, and I'm doing it wrong. You know, the th- minds think, that's what they do. It's part of our nature. So our practice is how do we learn to relate to it with wisdom, with awareness, with compassion, with skill. Upandita, wonderful Burmese meditation master, said once that any thought can arise in any mind at any time. Any thought can arise in any mind at any time. And maybe those thoughts are coming from your neighbor. We don't know where they come from. So what I'm interested in is the suffering that arises with our thoughts. when we take our thoughts to be true, when we take our belief systems to be true. There's a car in San Geronimo down the road and the license plate is number one loser. And I thought that person has taken that thought and that belief to be true, sadly. And what a suffering belief is to hold that, the number one loser. Often, I think we're passive victims to our thoughts. It seems like. um, It can often seem like we don't have any choice about their arising, which is true. But there's a sense that we can become passive in the sense that we take our thoughts to be objective truth. We give them an authority which often they don't have. The only authority they have is that which we give them. So for me, mindfulness practice was very liberating when I realized a thought was just a thought. It's a very powerful insight when we're lost in some thought about ourselves or about our life or about our mother and then, we, then we will, you know, we're easily caught in, in our thoughts and then something allows us to take a step back and, oh, it's just a thought. It's just something my mind has made up not necessarily true. The thought of my mother, as it's saying goes, is not your mother. It's a thought. In the worst case scenario, a lot of mental illness is when we've really so taken our mental life, our thought world, to be true. <coughs> that there's absolutely no space around it. Another aspect of the mind that I think – I find humor the most useful thing with working with thoughts because it's hilarious what the mind comes up with. The mind has no shame, the mind has no – it has no qualms about being an authority on anything and everything. (laughs) Oh, I know what we should do in Afghanistan. Have you been to Afghanistan? Do you know the history of Afghanistan? Most of us don't have a clue about Afghanistan, but we're an authority on it, aren't we? Or on what we should do with homelessness, or anything. The mind will come up with its view and think it's right, stick a lot of um, weight behind it, and it's just a view popped up from, who knows where that view popped up from. the mind easily fixes things. You know, we hear a lot about the teachings of impermanence, and we know things change, and yet how easy it is for the mind to fix itself. We're sitting in meditation, you're with the breath, you get distracted, your mind's particularly restless that day. Oh, I'll never be able to meditate. I'll never be good at this. I'll never get anywhere with spiritual practice. You know, When you hear the word never or always, no, it's just seen as a red flag. It's the mind fixing things in time that's generally not true. Usually, something preceded by the statement, never or always, is usually an exception. And then there's the comparing mind, the comparing thoughts. That's a setup. Remember there was one. Hmm. I remember sitting on long retreats at IMS and getting caught up in this idea of being the stillest yogi. <laughs> That's a setup. <laughs> Sometimes I was, and of course somebody you know around you is happens to be sitting for two hours, three hours, and damn. It's always unstable, the comparing mind. Mm -hmm. So what what are most of our thoughts about? (laughs) Have a guess. Ourselves. Mm -hmm. How much of our thoughts reify and strengthen the sense of self, sense of identity, who we think we are, and so our, so much of our sense of self is a construct. It's a belief that we continue to make real by our thinking about it. Who am I? How do I look? What am I going to be? What are people thinking of me? So, the good news is things change. The good news is things arise due to conditions and change due to conditions. So um, the saying goes, if you want to understand how we were in the past, look to the present. Look to how we are now, will explain how we were in the past. If you want to know how you're going to likely be in the future, also look to the present. How we're living in the present will determine how we are in the future. Continue to be caught up and obsessed in our thinking mind, good guarantee that tomorrow would be the same. If we start planting seeds to uh, bring a little more awareness to what's happening in our mind, our thoughts, likelihood that tomorrow there'd be a little more space around the thoughts. So I want to talk a little more about this concept of papancha, which is one of my favorite Buddhist Pali terms. Papancha has lots of different translations. One of them primarily is uh, it's a conceptual distortion. It's we look through, we look at the world through a filter, through a lens. Usually distorted. The Buddha said that which we conceive is ever other than the truth that which we conceive that which we perceive is rarely actually what it seems to be because we're looking at it through our own subjective lens just think about when you come into this room there's i don't know 60 80 people here how many can we really look at somebody clearly and objectively or do we look at them Or they remind me of my friend, and I know that person, and that person has such and such a history, and we're seeing them through our own veil. We think about how many stories we've created about people in this room. I've created lots. (laughs) You see somebody, have a sense of who they are. Oh, I know what that person's like. You can tell by what clothes they're wearing. I mean, come on. And what car they've just driven in them. It's a story. There may be some relative accuracy, but it's a story. And Thank God reality keeps proving us wrong. <laughs> so one aspect, one, one aspect of this is, through our past conditioning and our memory and our associations, our distortion of the present, uh, our perception, understanding of the present is colored. So an example I had of this was I was driving down in San Anselmo, and it was a beautiful sunny day. I was feeling happy. It's spring, feeling really happy about life and joy, and and then I looked over and I saw this old man, must have been in his seventies or his eight, probably in his eighties, uh, hunched over trying to dig his garden. And looked very painful, and um, that was my perception. Anyway, he was probably having a great time, but. He looked, looked, it just gave me, I didn't even think about it. I just drove on. And then I suddenly started thinking, oh, life's kind of hard. And, you know, it just gets harder and our bodies, you know. (laughs) And suddenly everything looked bleak and grim. And I was thinking, well, I've got probably maybe, you know, if I'm lucky, 30 years, 40 years, oh, it's going to be a long road. (laughs) And, I was like, and then I got to the stop sign, I was like, wait a minute, the last stop sign I was happy, this stop sign, life-looking misery. <laughs> Something is wrong with my perception. And I thought, all oh, right, saw so that, so that person, so interpreted it as suffering, as painful, and suddenly my world was painted in that light. That would be an example of a puncture, of perceptual distortion. Nothing had changed. It was still a beautiful sunny day, but I was seeing it through a certain lens. And we live in these lenses. I I find these lenses very fascinating to to watch. Moods are kind of lenses. Emotions also are kind of a lens. When we're in love, everything's kind of rosy-tinted, so the saying goes. When we're feeling tired and anxious, the world looks a little gnarly and gray and (coughs) difficult. So if things are distorted from our past association, memory, experience, then obviously our conditioning, how we were raised, has a big impact. In many Buddhist cultures, the emphasis is on, rather than the sense of original sin, which is what I grew up with as a Catholic, uh, which is not a great starting block, I must say, um, to... People growing up with the, your your and your nature is uh, already pure. Buddha nature is already in your is, is your essence. That's quite a different starting block, and it's going to massively affect how we perceive the world. So we, we run these. One of, one of the ways we run these is through our, our tapes. We all have our, our top ten tapes. Usually negative, sometimes positive. I'm never going to have enough. I'm not going to ever be able to be good at. I'll always be. You know, if you look into those thoughts and beliefs, they usually you can see, you can see the traces of them. Oh, what a surprise! My father had that one too. Oh man! Oh, my mother has that voice. Or some other voice in the past, so another aspect of this experience of papancha is how things arise dependence on things, so um, like the like the chain of dependent arising which is a key Buddhist concept of how things arise due to conditions. One aspect of that, when we look at our experience, we have six senses. With those six senses, we have contact with the world, feeling, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. All those experiences are either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. On the basis of that feeling tone of pleasantness or unpleasantness, we usually grasp or we usually avoid. We sort of move towards, move away. Also, in dependence on that, we create a story. So, for instance, um, on retreat, you're sitting on retreat, or you're sitting in a cafe, doesn't make any, are you sitting here today? Catch, some, catch somebody out of the corner of your eye. Oh, they look nice. Oh, they're attractive. Oh, I wonder if they're single or even if they're not single, or whatever. You create a story anyway. On retreat, you have, you have, you know, acres of time to do this, so you can really, like, really let rip. You plan your life together, you move up to Oregon, you, have a, you start an organic farm, you have kids, goes wrong, you get divorced. You know, this is in the space of a day. And you have no idea who this person is. You've never even spoken to them. (laughs) All starting from a pleasant sensation. Pleasant feeling. Contact. Oh, I like this person. That makes you feel nice. Oh, good. And we run with that. Equally the same with a negative experience. You know, classic one is get a little twinge in the knee. Oh, Oh, I wonder if that's my old injury coming back. You know, I know somebody who injured themselves sitting, they went to Marine General, and they had knee surgery, and <laughs> my God, I, if he doesn't ring the bell, I think I'm going to, you know, it's just, I'm going to be crawling out of here in a wheelchair. <laughs> and I've got a squash tennis game after this. And, you know, if we don't notice the unpleasantness, the mind gets caught up in fear, anxiety, aversion, and we create a story, and we're lost in some little soap opera. We don't need to watch TV, there's enough in the mind. There was a guy on retreat. This is a great example of Papancha. This was up somewhere up, up north, I think in Washington. <clears throat> the managers received a note on the retreat, who were running retreat, asking if they could call this particular airline to change the flight path because the flight path <laughs> was interrupting the meditation planes flying overhead with disturbing his retreat could he write to the airline and ask them to change the <laughs> flight back <laughs> that was a serious case of Papancho, <laughs> proliferating <laughs> so another place to catch this is uh, how, our, how our emotional life fuels our thoughts you know, when I talked about the need, fear, how that generates thoughts. If we're not aware of the emotion, usually we just keep spinning. And a thought pops up in your mind, Oh my God, I don't have as much money as I thought. I have no idea what my income is going to be next month. And then we're off imagining ourselves as a street person by Christmas, and losing the house and the car, and you know, we do that. You know, it's kind of funny, or I mean, it's not funny. Or if we're bored, or there's something unpleasant, we usually create a little story to make it more interesting. Create a little drama. You know, we like stimulation. We live. We live in a stimulating culture. So we like to keep things entertaining. Even if it's even if it's ending up as a you know bad street person. So the other way that we uh, there's many ways that we. Um, In think in this way around propensha. Another way is, is just simple proliferation. We go from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. I was thinking about this, wondering why, we, why do we do this, and where did this come from? And of course those why questions never really get us anywhere, but they're kind of fun to speculate anyway. And I'm saying this so you don't ask me why later. <laughs> <laughs> And I was thinking, well, maybe when we're in the jungle and we see a rustle in the trees, we need to know if that rustle is a mountain lion or a bird or a human. And we need to know that. And one of the ways that we've evolved is to be extremely perceptive around that. Except you know, animals more do it through a body sense, through, uh, through other senses, smell, felt sense, hearing. We do it through our thinking. We cognize, oh, what is it? Oh, I'm in Florida. It's unlikely to be a mountain lion. Might be a tourist from Disneyland, maybe. <laughs> so it's really helpful to know what's going on out there. You know, and that's why we, 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 our mental faculty is so sharply developed. Yet, yeah, it's sort of like we're like a, a young child with a big toy that we've kind of no idea how to control. You know, evolutionary, in evolution terms... You know having this neocortex is quite a relatively short period of time. We haven't really learned how to master it, All we're learning. so an example is I was on retreat. Retreat stories are always fun around Peancha because they're always so much more exaggerated. I was on retreat in Woodacre, uh sitting in a friend's house and kind of quiet retreat in the back of his house, and occasionally I'd go to the front. And I went to the front one day, and somebody j- j- just bought this house. Somebody drove up, poked their head out the car window, took a photo of me in the house, drove around the block, and I went to the kitchen. He took another photo and drove off. My mind was, what is that about?
1: <laughs>
0: I wasn't long over here getting my green card, and I thought, well, maybe that you know, the FBI is doing it. <laughs> check or the ins is on my case and subversive meditator do we really want him in the country the next day i do kind of a similar thing i go to the front window a woman drives up takes a picture of the house or me in it drives around the block takes another picture and drives off i'm like what is going on so of course my mind had a few little proliferations about that I never found out quite what it was. Uh I'm sure my photo's sitting in some FBI file somewhere. (laughs) Another time I was on retreat in New Mexico, and it was uh, quite late at night, and I was taking a walk through the woods. And all of a sudden this uh, (laughs) motorbike with a flatbed full of uh, lumber came hurtling towards me. And the only reason I saw it, because there, there was a full moon, it just coming out of nowhere, just, to drove past. If I'd been three steps in front, I probably would have been, been flattened. I was like, what is that? I was on retreat again. I was on my own. Uh-oh, somebody's in the woods. In my mind, just watching my, and I was watching my mind creating this little drama. Um, who knows why that, I think the the brakes just slipped and I just happened to be in close to it and... So the classic one when we're sitting is uh, sitting quietly, and you know if we're not that attentive, we don't catch this thought train early. So we usually wake up in the middle or at the end of it, and we go, "Wow, oh, I've been thinking for a long time." You know, we end up finding ourselves eating pizza in the steps of in the Romans and the, the steps in Rome. Or, um, we usually kind of asleep to the to this habit. So as we practice, hopefully what we do is we catch the story earlier and earlier. It's like it's like the metaphor is we're standing in a train station. And when we first start practicing, all the trains seem very exciting. We get on anyone that comes in and we take it along for a long ride. Mm-hmm. As we get more grounded and we we learn to be more centered we see the train we go oh that's kind of interesting but no thank you very much and eventually we just are able to see the trains coming and going and we don't get on them and occasionally we get one and we get sidetracked so the thoughts don't necessarily stop coming we just they just they begin to lose their bite because we see that when we get lost in those we're giving up What's here, which is a great sense of peace, a great sense of ease. You know, when we're sitting quietly with the breath, sounds, body, the mind's not moving anywhere, there's a great sense of, there can be a great sense of ease and stillness. Nothing needs to happen, just being. And when we see what it's like getting lost in these thought trains, it's like, oh, why would I do that? Why would I give up this sense of peace and well being? to get lost in some kind of thought train that often creates anxiety or excitement or agitation or restlessness. So when you're practicing, and as, as I was trying to encourage today, notice what it's like when you're in that. If you catch yourself in the middle of some story, some train. Notice what it feels like in the body. Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Notice what it's like when you let go of it, when you can release it. Does it feel like a sense of relief? So we're not using this as another thing to beat yourself up with. Oh, here I am lost in papancha, and proliferation and distortion. We're more. See- we're more learning about this stuff so we can cultivate clarity and compassion. Because the more we're lost in this, the more suffering is. If we really feel the suffering and the pain of it, it allows the heart to open. If we push it away, we're just creating more aversion. So the practice is noticing, seeing, seeing if we can let go, Knowing when we can't. When you notice the stories that are all, that are very much wrapped up in yourself, pop in this thought of that comes from some Korean master whose name I forget. Bang Kai. He said, "Don't side with yourself." Wouldn't that be a radical world if we didn't side with ourselves? If we looked at what was happening in Israel and people weren't siding with themselves, what would be happening? It would be a very different world. But we're all very identified with our view. And out of that comes pain, strife, war, suffering. You know, the worst extreme is what's happening in Israel and Afghanistan. Attached to our belief systems, our ideologies, our views and opinions, our sense of righteousness, our sense of separation, right and wrong, that's the worst-case scenario. Or we create <coughs> war and division in our own minds. So don't side with yourself. Look for the hook. Look what's, what's fueling the, uh, the thinking, the perception, the distortion. Is it an emotion? Is it boredom? Restlessness? teacher in India, Punjaji, used to say, don't let a thought land anywhere. Don't let a thought land anywhere. Don't allow the thought to take root, which means having a very light, loose mind. When the thought takes root, it gets stuck. We get identified. We take it as ours. Any thought can arise at any time in any mind. Why do we claim such identity with thoughts? You know, when we th- all, all of our thoughts, you look at a thought, did you will it into action or did it just arise? Most of our thoughts are just arising like a waterfall. We don't have to take them to be who we are. They're just what's happening in this mind stream. So when the Buddha was asked, what was the essence of his teaching by, by here, famous Buddhist story, and the Buddha replies, "Um, in the seen there is just the seen, in the heard there is just the heard, in the cognized there is just the cognized, in the sensed there is just the sensed. And seeing is just seeing, and hearing there's just hearing, nothing more, nothing less, just what there is. He's talking about perceiving and understanding and living without that overlay, the conceptual overlay. Not that we don't use that when it's helpful. You know, if I have to book a plane ticket, I have to use my thinking mind to know when I'm going and where I'm going. And, you know, we use our thinking minds a lot. You know, they're amazing development of nature how refined we can use our thinking for art and creativity and business and work and but who's 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 in control who's a master of whom and when we when we drop into that place of being free from distortion, free from proliferation, just being with the sense experience, hearing. We just do that right now. Is hearing, seeing, perhaps. Sensing the body. It's very simple. It's very ordinary. The nature of the mind is aware. We can be aware of thinking oh, just thinking. It's that simple. So much of those wonderful Japanese haikus, zen haikus, zen poetry, any illuminated poetry comes from the mind that's really just with that simplicity, that sense, experience without overlay. A famous poem by Basho, a Japanese poet, the old pond, frog leaps, splash. The old pond, frog leaps, splash. Just as it is. When Ryokan, another famous Zen poet and teacher, was burgled, he didn't have very much, he probably had a rice pot and a teapot, but anyhow he was burgled and robbed of all that, and he wrote a haiku, The moon at the window, the thief was left behind. He wasn't lost in the drama of, oh my God, I don't have a teapot. Mm -hmm. Then he just walked into his house, the moon at the window, the thief was left behind. The traffic on the 101, (laughs) is just the traffic (laughs) (coughs) let's just sit quietly for a minute and just drop into that place of simplicity You're not trying to do anything. You're not trying to not do anything. You're not even trying to sit. You're just being. The mind is naturally aware, so we don't need to make an effort to be aware. So peace is right here in our very midst. It's always a moment away. Always accessible. So, anybody have any thoughts? (laughs) Anybody dare to have a thought? (laughs) Maryam, hi. Hi. You
2: know, I've been thinking a lot about this and I've been trying to meditate, and I have been meditating. Yet, there's something really tearing or fiery inside of me, and that is that how much even meditation could be used into numbing people about what's happening in our world. Because like when I see Gandhi, you know, it's like what would Gandhi do in this situation? Like for example, the U.S. is paying Israel $10 million a day to take on this massacre. And uh, how much the person that is sitting only creating peace for themselves could be attached to just have Mm -hmm. it for themselves without social action that's really getting me these days because I see that if the whole population that is meditating could join into the streets you know, walk for peace what could happen? I have announced so many times that we have a peace protest in San Anselmo every Saturday I have got maybe two people from Spirit Rock Mm. I don't understand
0: Mm. Thank you I think it's a really important point. Uh, <clears throat> the Buddhist tradition, generally historically, has been somewhat passive around social action and engagement. It's definitely more shifts in the West, and there's, there's some there's pockets in Asia, the Thai monks in the forest, and there's some key figures in Asia who are very radical in their wanting to. Link Buddhist practice and the path of compassion with action, given that say the Thai monks the Thai forest monks in Thailand are becoming somewhat of a relic because there's no forest left, you know they 've all been ordaining trees as a way of their way of trying to protect the forest, so it 's true the the more increasingly aware we are of global suffering, the more it pulls on us to take action.
2: So why aren't
0: you? I can't answer that. People have to answer that for themselves. Yeah, I' mean, I can say a lot of things, but I don't really want to. Um, you know, I think people like you voicing that is one is one way to contribute to helping raise people's awareness. I don't s I don't see them as separate, creating peace in oneself because we are part of the world. So I do think that sowing seeds of peace in ourselves is part of sowing seeds of peace in the world. They're not separate. Um, I put a lot of hope or trust in that deepening awareness naturally manifests in the world because we are we are, integ- we are, we are, um, we are participating in the world. We're not separate. how that leads to more specific social engagement and social action. Um, you know, I, I think that is, an, that is, you know, it is specific for each person. You can never know what people are doing, also in the world. So I'd be watchful of creating a view that these people are, are or aren't, because you don't know. You don't know who's, you know, maybe ten people here are doing great work. You know, we just don't know what people are doing. Um, and I think it's important for each of us to hold that question. Here we are in a world that works, destroying the planet ecologically. Um, our government supports a lot of destructiveness a lot of violence in the world how do we work with that, how do we live with that what is our participation you know the Buddha was a great exemplary of um, his first uh, his first encouragement to his he had initially 60 awakened disciples and he said um, go forth for the good of the many, for the welfare of the many, out of suffering for the many, do not go on two paths the same. He said, go out and relieve suffering in the world. So it's clearly in the essence of the teaching. And as part of our practice, it's, it's really up to us to look at how does that relate to our lives? How do we um, bring that wealth of... Uh, gifts that the Dharma has given us how do we take the step to bring that into the world and each one of those that's going to be different please
3: I, I guess I, I want to go into that a little more deeply because um, to take one example say I could take myself And I, I, you know, I'm of an age now where I actually, some things I can actually see for myself, a little bit at least. And so when that question arises, which does arise, I mean, anybody who comes here that question will arise, how to relieve suffering in the world. And I do understand about myself that I am drawn to relieve suffering in specific ways, and in other ways I find my path more blocked. And I could spend a lot of time in... Pondering why I'm not drawn in all directions. Or I can allow whatever that piece comes through me that I can see what I can do and surrender to it and just do it and hope or trust that the other pieces will be addressed by other people with other pulls on them. Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. it is clear to me that I can't. Mm -hmm. I'm not given kind of resources that I can do all of that. That Mm -hmm. just isn't given to me. Mm -hmm. I wish it were.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's really responding to the wisdom within oneself of knowing what's true and what's appropriate and that we can only do so much and what, is, what are we called to do.
3: I guess for me the pieces that I want is that I'm hoping, it may not happen, that through a practice of meditation I will deepen that avenue within myself that gets called so that I won't even have to think about it but that the being and doing of it will be so powerful that I won't have I won't have to have very many thoughts and feelings about it. It'll mm-hmm. be part of my being. Mm-hmm.
4: Thank you. I was thinking as you were talking that um, that to do to really practice what you were saying is uh, you really have to put the observer on the front burner. You have to somehow get into the observer so that those thoughts don't take you. And and I was remembering, it's sort of similar to what you're saying, but I was remembering at a retreat once in Santa Rosa, um, back in those days at the Angela Center, and we were having a meal, maybe 80 people in the dining room, and someone started choking. And we all sat there. It it was, you know, we were just observing, like, Hmm. and it took a teacher coming out from the, you know, the teachers' dining room across the hall to inquire
1: Hmm.
4: of this guy. And I mean, he was okay, but there is—it does seem like there's a dichotomy. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, there's a—the danger is we do move into the passive observation, watching things come and go, come and go, come and go. There's a middle way between that and engagement. Actually, moving forth, you know, the, the the meditation teachings generally tend to overemphasize the watching, the observation, and not so much the engagement. And so that is the danger: we we move into the more passive uh, view. Hopefully, in that observation, we're cultivating wisdom and a sense of a middle way of knowing what's appropriate when. Did you have a question?
5: Oh, um, As you were talking, I was thinking about um, creativity and imagination and thinking that those are kind of the flip side anyway. mm-hmm. It's like the other mm-hmm. side of the propensure coin, so mm-hmm. to speak. But for those of us whose stock and trade <laughs> is being creative, mm-hmm. you know, people who are writers, people who are artists, mm-hmm. we really, in some ways, need to cultivate that wandering mind so that we can go places that we need to to provide the water for what we produce mm-hmm. and so my my question sort of was do you think that creativity and imagination are sort of cultivated cultivated problems <laughs>
0: I think I'm not sure they're kind of the same when they're different. Like, like when I think about intuition and creativity, creative thinking, um, sometimes that's associative, like proliferating, but sometimes it's coming from something much deeper. Um, I think a lot of the creative process comes when the mind is actually quieter, and there's some. We're not just on a lot of Papantra is on the sort of level of mental chatter. Mm-hmm. And I think the creative process often is something coming from a deeper place, not always um, and yes i think I think the the question really is whether it's conscious or not like if you're if that's your work, then obviously you- de- develop that as a tool you know, and I have friends who write a lot who are plagued when they meditate because what they've most developed is that flowing, associative reflective um, that 's where the ideas come from, <coughs> so I think there's a lot of gray lines i think what's what 's important is we're just clear what we 're doing when we 're doing it and not just sort of having this blanket of being lost in our proliferating thoughts all day um, yeah i think I think it is i wouldn't say it's a com- what did you say deliberate papancha culturecha yeah, I think it's more um cultivated creative thinking I, I do see them as somewhat different mm-hmm. Yeah, even though they have similar you know there's, there's similarities there's some like you probably allow your mind to go into free fall and allow it to associate and a lot of creativity comes that way so I don't think there's a hard and fast rule um, but the key is just knowing what we're doing when we're doing it yeah Please.
6: Yeah. Um, would you agree that the precepts are absolute? <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, <a> <laughs> Go on then.
6: And how seriously do you take them?
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> so,
2: <laughs> could you just review the precepts for those who might not be familiar
0: with them? So, the five precepts that are given out um, as lay practitioners. Not killing, or non harming. So they traditionally, they're not killing, not stealing. Uh, no sexual misconduct, no false speech, no lying, and not indulging in intoxicants, alcohol, drugs that cloud the mind. Yes? How absolute?
6: They're absolutes, right?
0: In what sense?
6: They're absolutes. You either do or you don't.
0: <laughs> um... <laughs> No, they're quite different in Buddhist practice, actually. Um, I mean, we translate them as ethical guidelines of behavior or ethical modes of conduct.
6: Okay. Yeah. That's an absolute.
0: Um, You'd have to define what you mean by absolute.
6: I mean, it's a fixed goal.
0: No, it's very blurred, actually. In the sense, in the sense of well, traditionally that's not blurred. So no, no killing is no killing. It was referring to no killing a human being, actually. Okay. So, but it's blurred in the sense that for some people that means no killing of any life whatsoever. It means.
6: Okay, I'll, I'll accept that. that that goes to the right of it. That's okay. I'm just talking about, you know, what it means, and and, and then how seriously in your life do you take that?
0: I try not to kill anybody. <laughs> <laughs> I know that when I, whenever I violate the precepts, I suffer. That's so. It's it's not an absolute, as in you doing right or doing wrong. It's I'm trying to be free of suffering, and I know that if I if I know if I'm not truthful with speech, if I know I'm inappropriately inappropriate sexually, if I'm uh, um, taking which isn't that which isn't given to me, I have a, there's a contraction, there's pain, there's guilt, there's remorse, there's suffering. So I endeavour to practice them because not because it's a moral absolute, because I don't want to suffer. Right. But and they,
6: are, they are the foundation of your existence, correct?
0: No. <laughs> really? Not at all. No. Foundation of my existence. <laughs> I'm quite sure what the foundation of my existence you know off the cuff would be something like um, developing a life of awareness. Compassion, wisdom, freedom.
6: You know, you know, you know this is germane to what I'm thinking about, but you've chosen to do that through these precepts. That, that is what will we'll get you where you want to go. Or, well, you'll never get where you want to go, okay? I understand that, and neither am I, <laughs> but, but I guess, you know. But what I'm saying is you've chosen... Those precepts to manifest—that's what manifests what you want or what you know is correct.
0: I no, I've just—I've used them more so. You know, I don't even think about them anymore because they're sort of second nature. But I, and it's not like I go, oh, well now is that was that was I violating the fourth or the fifth? I just mm-hmm. my—it's—it's it's much more general for me of uh, non-harming myself or others. That's really what comes down to non-harming, and my system will tell me when I have, because I'll feel a contraction.
6: Okay, so my point is, is that when you give a talk,
1: mm-hmm.
6: and I think this is important, and I, you know, you are coming from those precepts. See,
0: I'm coming from, I'm, you know, in this format, I'm coming from the Buddhist tradition.
6: Which of those precepts?
0: The, pre- the precept is just one aspect of the teaching. Well, I understand that, but there's still a part of you
6: that there is that an assumption. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Is that when you come, you're coming from that kind of clarity. That's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to understand that. That the foundation you're coming from is there already.
0: And the foundation really is non-harming, not the precepts. Okay. The foundation is respecting life, okay. which comes out of um, understanding of our interconnectedness. Yeah. And it's true that the the ethical life is talked about as the foundation from which we build meditation and wisdom. Um but I don't hold up the five precepts up here. It's more um, living a compassionate life.
6: Right, but when, exactly. And when you're thinking of thoughts, you know, whatever thought that might be, part of the way that you dissolve those thoughts is through um, your ethical, already behavior, your already commitment to ethics?
0: Generally, I wouldn't say I use that as a framework for working with the thoughts personally. <laughs> I, I use mindfulness.
6: Which I think is basically the same thing. But, I, I, you know, that's what, I just wanted to...
0: Clarify that. Okay, maybe maybe it's just a question of terminology. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. Okay. Please um,
5: I've noticed um, a difference when I'm in retreat and in my daily life, big difference. <laughs> um, but when I'm in retreat and I have my mind is you know filled with all kinds of thoughts, positive things and negative things. Um, and I find some space between them. It is a kind of peaceful place, and I appreciate it. And um, in my daily life, I'm aware that I have the same kind of internal conversation going on, that there is um, a tendency to get caught up in worrying or to get caught up in greedy wanting or whatever it is my mind is doing, or sometimes just filled with joy. I think, isn't this a really wonderful day? And while one is, the joy is pleasant, the other is unpleasant, the space in between is not what the space is on retreat. The space in between feels much more like boredom to me. And it's what I think drives my mind in some ways to go one direction or the other, but not feeling good in-between. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So do you investigate boredom?
5: Well, I think I should. I mean, this is, I, I'm just <laughs> coming to this question mm-hmm. based on what you've talked about mm-hmm. today, and I'm, I'm realizing this, that I don't, I'm not comfortable in that space in between. Perhaps Mm -hmm. it is bored. I mean, I remember being on retreat once. One of the more painful experiences I ever had was after dinner, going out on the porch, and I remember I had a cup of tea in my hand, and for a moment I thought, oh, what was going to be wild to next sitting, and I thought, oh, I think I'll take that walk down the, and then I thought, oh, no, I've done that before. I don't know. I know what's on that walk. The walk is boring. And and really then thinking, well, there's nothing to do. What am I going to do? No, there's nothing to do. I'm just here having tea. There's t- <laughs> I mean, it was like <laughs> that feeling when I was a kid sitting on the front porch. Well, what do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? <laughs> you know? I mean, it was nothing to do. It was not a good, it was a, an empty kind of, Mm -hmm.
0: This is on retreat or when you're...
5: This was on retreat, yes. But but generally you're sitting. You know, I was kind of in between sittings and walkings.
0: So I wonder whether the difference is, you know, when you're on retreat and there's nothing going on, the factors of calm, tranquility, concentration, a lot of qualities have been developed that when the mind settles into doing nothing, it's actually very peaceful when we, when there's nothing going on in our lives, usually it's moments between a lot of stuff going on. Yes. Busyness, anxiety, doing, thinking, planning, talking, scheduling. Blah, blah, blah. So when the mind drops into it, there's like so-called nothing going on, and it gets bored, I think often that's less pleasant to be with because one, we feel the discharge from all the busyness that we've been involved in, all the preoccupation, all the getting identified. So the coming into quiet is somewhat, we have a residue of the past, which is unpleasant. There's a sense of, um, I imagine in that boredom, there's probably some restlessness or anxiety Mm. that allows us, that we're sort of wanting to get away from. Boredom is a form of aversion, not wanting to be here. Why, do we, why don't we want to be here? What, are, what is it that's unpleasant? So I'd look into what's unpleasant about this. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also in our lives that we're on such a momentum of doing and thinking that when we do stop, um, there's such a forward momentum of not resting here but the next thing mm-hmm. that it's hard, harder to drop in mm-hmm. to a place of ease. So, but I would say just look at the boredom. It's like, okay, now I'm bored. What does that look like? If you drop into the boredom, you're more likely to understand what's there and um, find a place that's more easeful. Mm -hmm. You think the boredom has to get to go, then we're caught in a struggle and pushing, pulling, and ease slips out the window. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, boredom, okay. What's that like? Oh, I don't like it. Oh, I feel a little dull, or heavy, or restless, mm-hmm. and then it changes. So I just bring some exploration to that, and thinking—not thinking, not thinking it has to be different. Not thinking it should be like it is on retreat, because mm-hmm. why would it be? <coughs> Any response? yeah No, I, I'm. I'm. I'm going to examine
5: that.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, notice how the boredom disengages us from experience. Usually, if we're disengaged, of course, life is uninteresting because we're not, you know, we're a little spaced out. <coughs> mm-hmm. In like that walk, if you did that walk disengage, it'd be boring. If you did that walk and you're paying attention to mm-hmm. you know, the, the wax on the leaves and the insects, and, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, it's a heaven realm. It's really you know it's a state of mind. You know, we do a walk one day; it's like heaven on earth. The next day, it's like, well, that was pretty boring. They should plant some more shrubs. You know? <laughs> the hill hasn't changed. That's true. So, I think I'm.
5: It's a misperception on my part. It isn't the same as when I'm in retreat and dropping into that peaceful place. I'm thinking it is, and it's not. It's just another form of the other. <laughs> A less active, but obviously not a peaceful place. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: It's still a thinking. It's still thinking about that this isn't, well, this isn't great. You know, this <laughs> isn't whatever. It's too much. It's not enough. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it, there's still some judgment about how it is. And that space on between, retreat between thinking that those <laughs> split-second <laughs> spaces really are without judgment. They mm-hmm. really are peaceful. They
0: really are mm-hmm. quiet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so two things. Next time you're in that place on retreat or not, just drop into what it, what is it about that experience that allows that sense of peace. And when you're in the place that's bored and restless, see if you can drop more into the bodily sense experience. Feel the body. Feel the connection with the ground hear the sounds feel the air on your face feel really become bodily grounded rather than mental Mm. because I think that is another way when we're we're pretty easeful usually there's quite a lot of body awareness it's a sense of being dropped in to the body not always but sometimes that's a really good avenue you know I think most of us live from our eyebrows upwards You know, 99% of the time, so, you know, we forget we have a body even. Uh, The more we're in the body, the more we're in present time. You know, if I say feel your feet right now, your feet are in the present moment. They're not anywhere else. And when we're in the present moment, oh. Oh, it's actually life is pretty simple. You know how are we doing for time? Oh, we're at 11 o'clock. Is it a quick question? Did you have your hand up? Me. Yeah.
5: Oh, um, <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> um, I, w- I was thinking about what you were saying, and I know that I have such a, there's a, a cultural assumption of value that's placed on doing. And yeah, big when time. When I'm on retreat, I'm supposed to be there mm-hmm. in the moment, not doing a whole lot. And oh. so I think it's easier in, when I am in my normal life if um, things aren't going along really, proceeding really well, I can get very bored and restless because I know that deep down there's this thing that I should be doing Mm because doing is a good thing and being productive is a good thing and if Mm -hmm. you're not doing, then you're not productive and you're not being valuable. Right. So I know that that cultural assumption really makes me squirm. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: Yeah. Okay. Thank you, everybody. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. May our practice here be for the welfare and happiness of all suffering beings in the world.